Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. What if you could become someone who makes people want to say yes? What if you could walk into a room and say, I've got an idea, and people would be wanting to say yes to your proposal before they even heard it? This is what influence can do. It can win hearts and can spark change and can get you what you want in your work life, at home, and in your creative endeavors. And it's what the guest of today's episode teaches. Yale behavioral scientist Dr. Zoe Chance is a writer, teacher, researcher, and climate philanthropist obsessed with the topic of interpersonal influence. She earned her doctorate in behavioral science from Harvard and now teaches Mastering Influence and Persuasion, the most popular course at Yale School of Management. Her research has been published in top academic journals and covered in global media. Zoe speaks internationally for Fortune 500 firms and leading NGOs and gave a popular TEDx talk, How to Make a Behavior Addictive. Her framework for behavior change is the foundation for Google's global food policy that helps over 100,000 people make healthier choices every day. In her best-selling book, Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen, Zoe explains that influence does not actually work the way many of us expect, and she shows us how to move past popular misconceptions, such as, for example, the idea that asking for more will make people dislike you. Today, Zoe will share her strategies with us, and here's why what she has to say matters profoundly. Zoe teaches smart, kind people to raise money for charity, get elected to political office, fund startups, start movements, save lives, find love, negotiate great deals and job offers, and even get along better with their kids. In other words, she helps people to use their superpower of influence as a force for good. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Zoe, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining us on the Superhumanized podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to meet you. Zoe, you're a professor at the most popular course at Yale School of Management, and you are teaching at Yale, but you actually said that if someone wants to become an entrepreneur, Yale might not be the right place. Why is that? I actually think that business school is probably not the right place altogether. And I say that from personal experience because I went to get an MBA at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and I chose that school because they had the best entrepreneurship program, and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then I got to meet all of these entrepreneurs who were really 
putting all of their heart and soul into their businesses. They're exhausted. Most of them are failing as most entrepreneurs do. A few of them are succeeding. And then I saw the jobs that were the MBA jobs that people were qualified for once they had an MBA. And this was a tiny fraction of all of the jobs in the universe. Like I'm, my background is marketing and there are very few MBA marketing jobs. They pay really well. And if you have gotten an MBA and then you're qualified for one of these MBA jobs, it's very hard to say no to one of those MBA jobs. And marketing is nothing compared to the amount of money that you can make going into consulting or going into finance. And it's not that I believe everyone coming to get an MBA is mercenary and just looking for money. Of course, we all do, or I believe should want to create our abundance in our lives. But what happens is most of us who get an MBA, we get really a lot of student loans. And so it's very hard to be in the situation of needing to pay these loans back. And then you have this option of do an MBA job instead of be an entrepreneur. And that's the route that most of us take. Like I became a brand manager for Barbie for a mm -hmm. while after my MBA and before going back to school. But that's why an MBA is not the perfect path for being an entrepreneur from a financial perspective, but just from a learning perspective, I believe that focusing on actions is so much more important than focusing on knowledge. And through our actions, we get experience. And this is what's going to help us be successful in whatever field it is that we're in. And while you need a credential to have one of these MBA jobs, you don't need any credential to be a successful entrepreneur. The Having a degree matters very little. So some people think you should go and get a degree because it's a great opportunity for networking and meeting lots of people. But there are many other ways to do that, many less expensive ways to do that that don't take two years of your entire life. Mm. So I apologize to everyone, all the administrators at Yale School of Management, please don't fire me. And I also apologize to all of my students I adore who are going into entrepreneurial areas. There are many who make it work. It's just for people who are thinking about this and feeling like I did. I need to have an MBA to be an entrepreneur. That's what's not. I love what you just said and made makes a lot of sense to me. And I doubt that you're going to get fired. The chances are zero crossed. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's really interesting what you just touched upon that experience is much more valuable than mere knowledge and wisdom, I think are two separate things. And wisdom right. comes from what you just spoke about experience or also exactly. the concept of gnosis. So tell me what gnosis is, because I've heard this word and I really don't understand it very well. So it actually means, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but what I gathered from it, uh, it means to truly know as an embody something. And you do that via actually experiencing it. So instead of just intellectually grasping a concept to actually live it and experience it and thus have a much deeper sense of knowing and wisdom that is truly embodied. It gives you a much different access to whichever type of subject or experience you're seeking. That's amazing. And I'm so glad to know this word because that's exactly what I try to teach. Mm -hmm. And so speaking about that, getting an MBA might not be the ideal. It's good to have it, of course. But so if you would advise any 
budding entrepreneurs, people who have a vision, who are excited about bringing something to the world, whatever that is, what are the top things you'd actually advise them to experience in order to help facilitate birthing their vision into physical manifestation? Go out and do the thing. Like, Be brave, be bold. You don't have to do it alone. And you don't have to take huge financial risks to do it. So when I say be brave, you don't have to take a giant leap into the abyss of joblessness. You can be taking baby steps while you have whatever source of income you might have at the moment. I think artists and entrepreneurs equally are tempted, some of us, to just take this grand leap and hope that the net will appear. And I think that's very romantic and I'm more of a practical person. And I've also seen a lot of people get deeply into credit card debt, both artists and entrepreneurs. And a lot of us in the area of personal development who are interested in improving ourselves, improving our lives and this constant baby steps toward who is it that I could be and what kind of life could I have I just really believe that if we do this in a practical way, that means we're doing it in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. And I I don't want to tell anyone to take on a great amount of debt for an MBA program or for some, for starting your business or for taking some personal development kind of program, but we can work together and we can test minimal viable products. We can also get a lot of helpful experience doing apprenticeship type of work for people who are doing the thing that we want to do. And there are many of us all around the world in all different industries, businesses, sectors, areas, nonprofits who love mentoring. And we love to have people come and work with us and we're happy to show them the ropes. So you don't have to have your perfect business idea in order to be an entrepreneur you can learn about how to be an entrepreneur by working with entrepreneurs. That is really good advice, Zoe. And having mentors, whether it's in the business world, whether it's for personal life, whether it's for spiritual growth, I found that one of the most profounding means of evolving myself. And a lot of us are don't even think about it. Or even if we think about it, we're afraid uh, to ask. We're afraid to bother others. This is also something you personally? <laughs> yes, I really? also still have that. I've been working um, on it, but that's something, for example, if somebody comes to me and asks me for a favor, can I do this or that for them? In most cases, I'm super happy to do whatever I can to make that something happen for the other person. And whether it's friends or it could be even a stranger on the street asking me for a little favor well, or asking for favors for friends from people that I'm connected to. Hey, can you do this and that first? They're amazing. And this would be really helpful to them. But asking for myself, I've overcome a lot of it, but I still have this. "Mm, (laughs) It used to be an actual physical sense of discomfort that at least is gone, but I do still sometimes find it difficult. Where did you feel that discomfort in your body? That's a very interesting question. So it's actually right. I think it's in the solar plexus region, actually mm. the tightening of the solar plexus region. I can so relate to that. 
completely. Even though I teach this stuff and even though I practice it for most of us, I don't think we ever get completely Mm -hmm. comfortable asking in every situation, each person advocating for ourselves. And the two areas that the most people are uncomfortable asking is asking for love and asking for money for Mm -hmm. ourselves. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. You're going to say something. Oh no, this is, this is so profound asking for love or for money. And both of this is so existential and makes us so vulnerable in very different ways. There's also a lot of shame. I feel attached to it as an, I don't feel lovable. I don't feel worthy, or I feel like I'm a failure because I need to ask for financial support. Where do you think that comes from and how can we overcome this? Where it comes from, I'm just going to guess because my research background doing behavioral science and things doesn't qualify me to, I'm not a therapist, but I've done a lot of therapy myself and I've talked to a lot of people about these kinds of things. My mom is a therapist as well. And this feeling of being unworthy seems to be just a deep part of the human experience and all of the spiritual teachers that I've ever worked with and meditation teachers, people like this say that we all have this voice of self-doubt and unworthiness that comes up that we can hear once we start quiet, quieting the other voices down. So I think the first thing for us to just acknowledge and embrace is that feeling unworthy is just part of the human condition. And if you don't, if you're listening to the show and you don't feel unworthy, you feel great. That's fantastic. And I hope that you never do, but I doubt it. And something that's really cool that I get to see as I work with all these high performers, like you two work with all these high performers, I get to work with people who are so smart and so talented and so successful that they would seem like people who shouldn't have these self-doubts, but they have imposter syndrome more than anyone else. And it turns out that feeling of imposter syndrome, which is a feeling of being unworthy, and this is just something that happens more in a work context than a personal context, but this feeling of who me, and I don't deserve this, and all of these, like when you show up at a place like Yale or any other place like an Ivy League school that's hard to get into, We all look at each other and think, okay, they belong. I don't belong. I somehow slipped through the gate unnoticed, but somebody's going to notice and I'm going to get figured out. I'm going to get kicked out. Like even at the beginning of this conversation, I was like, I hope my bosses don't fire me. There's this probably still idea of uh, not sure that I belong. And what happens that, that I get to observe is as people are playing big, and they're stepping up and they're following their big dreams and they're doing things that are scary, like asking for things that they maybe don't feel that they deserve or won't get. And they're putting themselves into the public sphere. Like I ask people to publish op-eds for the class that they take with me. And I ask people to do a lot of asking. We do a lot of fundraising. And the students have jokingly nicknamed my class doing un- uncomfortable things that make you a better person. <laughs> and it's continuing to step out of our comfort zone. And there's this scariness that comes along with that, that f- this feeling of imposteriness of who me. And I just say to anyone who feels that, I take that as a sign that you're on the right path 
and you are playing big. You don't get that feeling when you play small. That makes me feel really good right now. And I think uh, a lot of the people who listen to our conversation will also be able to relate to that. What you just said about that one of the causes is this, we feel like we don't belong, right? That is such a profound human desire to belong, to be connected. And on so many levels, this is... Uh, super important for us on the biological level to be part of the tribe, which right. you know, helps ensure our survival on the emotional and the mental level. And the fear of not belonging is actually really uh, existential and something that I guess is always in the back of our minds. And in order to feel like we belong, whether it's it might be things privately that we wish to change or influence. It might be things we're passionate about or our work that we want to influence. And so in order to do this, we think we need to get people on our side to, we need to change their minds possibly. And actually you say in your book, influence is your superpower, which by the way, thank you so much for sending it. I love it. This is a new Bible of mine. <laughs> thank you. Um, so you say that we may not be able to change people's minds, but we can most likely change their behavior. How do we actually change someone's behavior without changing their mind first? This is a weird concept, right? Most of the time when we're thinking about influencing people, we're thinking about changing their mind and we're specifically thinking about people who disagree with us, yes. that we want to change the mind of somebody who might be on the other's political mm -hmm. disagreement or somebody at work who has the opposite point of view about where a project needs to go or somebody in our family disagrees about where we should live, how we should spend our money, what our priorities should be. And unfortunately, this is going to be the these are the areas that you're least likely to succeed as someone who wants to be influential. And people waste so much time trying and failing to change the minds of people whose minds will never be changed. And when you think of your own political views, most of us hold these views very strongly. And especially if we have any kind of involvement in politics, there's just nothing that someone's going to say that will persuade us to go to the other side. When we think of religion and spirituality and all of the effort that gets spent on evangelizing by people from different religions all over the world, if you have a strong spiritual belief, then there's probably nobody from any religion who's going to come and convert you to their religion, no matter what they say. Right. So anyone who's trying to convert you to the opposite side on an issue you deeply care about is wasting their time. And so this is the same thing for you trying to persuade other people mm -hmm. to change their minds about issues they deeply care about. However, there are all kinds of situations where we can influence people's behavior without changing their minds at all. And this is because most of our behavior is unconscious. We're not even planning what it is that 
we're doing from moment to moment, because if we had to plan it, we couldn't even move. We couldn't eat. <laughs> like figuring out what to have for breakfast, if you had to think about this carefully and weigh all of the pros and cons of all of the potential options, is going to take you all day and eventually you're going to starve. So a simple situation that I can share that can help people distinguish between decisions, thinking, and behavior, and it illustrates what researchers call the intention behavior gap, has to do with eating. And what was the number one most expensive public health campaign that had ever happened in the history of the world anywhere that was in the 1990s from 1991 to 1995 in the U.S., this was the five-a-day campaign, trying to persuade people to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day to prevent cancer and have other good health outcomes. So for these five years, they're spending $50 million a year. Messaging is everywhere. And this was touted as a huge success because awareness that you should be eating this many fruits and vegetables went from 8% of the population to 32% of the population massive win. And then 29 other countries around the world replicated the five-a-day campaign. But researchers later went back and measured from the available data compared how many people actually were eating that much in 1991 versus 1995. And the number was 11% and 11%. It hadn't changed at all in terms of behavior. And then when they looked at the rest of that decade, it had actually declined a bit. So all this effort, all this money going into changing people's minds and giving them the message, you need to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and you're vegan, right? So this is something that like somehow the message got to you at some point in your life and it did make a huge difference. But I'm curious what was it that you had to do if there was anything conscious or difficult about changing your actual behavior to be cooking or preparing or shopping for fruits and vegetables? Because for most people, that's so difficult that this is what stops them. And apparently 30% of the vegetables that people buy in the United States gets get thrown out because they're rotten. Mm. So you're a poster child for this actually worked somebody somehow gave you this message? And I know it's not just about eating plants, but how did you shift behavior to take this on as a massive lifestyle change? That's a really uh, great question, Zoe. Thank you for that. And I, for me, it was, I think, a shift in how I saw the world and my place in it. I knew a lot of things, but I never acted upon them. I think one day I realized how everything I really care about is connected to the choices I make, what I put on my plate, and whether it's health was actually the first thing that showed me that a small change has direct influence on my own personal well-being. So I guess that's a really big one in a sense, the what's in it for me. So going from having constant all kinds of different infections that show that your body's in a state of inflammation uh, from TMI, bladder infections, acne, uh, flus and colds multiple times a year, which was gone once I switched to a vegetarian diet, 
to realizing that the things that always really get me to emotionally respond that either make me very happy or very sad, such as social justice, the environment, how is it doing, as well as how healthy and happy are the people around me. I realized all of that was connected. So once that disconnect was gone, I actually was able to make the shift from eating tons of meat, which the flavor I still to this day think is amazing. I just don't eat it anymore <laughs> to actually step-by-step step reducing my animal protein intake. I'm AVAP, that's a term I coined, as vegan as possible. So I'll still make exceptions once in a while for honey or maybe once a year or so for fish, once every two years for cheese. That's how it's been over the last 10 years. But yeah, it was actually being able to really connect on a deep personal level with what it all meant and what was at stake and my part in it. That's beautiful. Thank you. And it sounds like you had this mindset shift and that you also started experimenting with the behavior like we were talking about earlier with entrepreneurs, where you experimented to see what was the impact on your body and your mood and your health and illnesses. And then at that point, maybe it was easier to be committed to what a lot of people find to be just difficult behavior, not just being vegan, but preparing, especially vegetables. And you could see that it's worthwhile because it's going to transform your life. Yes. It also really, it had a huge effect on my mental well-being and health. A lot mm -hmm. of the things with like mood swings and uh, other stuff just disappeared or lowered. So I think being able to uh, quantify a behavior change immediately can be very helpful and instrumental in making it sustainable and actually building upon it. Have you done blood sugar kinds of experiments or no? I'm just curious with all your biohacking. I know that. So I, I took a few gene tests as well. And I found out what had been, you know, a part of my life ever since I can remember since I'm a little girl, I, when I get low blood sugar, I literally I can't think anymore. I can't function anymore. I get very extreme reactions to it. It's also something that if I ever chose to become pregnant, apparently I really need to watch out for. So I haven't, I take great care not to get too close to getting in that state of complete brain and physical disarray, but I haven't so I, I'm quite aware of what I put in my body and to make sure that I don't get these crashes. Is that what you asked or? I was, I was just curious because people that I've talked to thinking about going vegan seems like blood sugar is going to be high because you're eating all of these carbs and things. And so this is another area. Oh, yeah. I've done some research on food and behavioral economics with Google. Mm -hmm. And some of the first studies came out of what we were first talking about the difference between intentions and behavior where maybe you should be eating fruits and vegetables, but maybe you're not actually doing it. Typically the gap just has to do with how easy is it, but some, in some rare cases it has, it can be, it can be bridged with a high motivation, which is what you had. So it wasn't that it got to be easier. You just had very high motivation. So a lot of people who end up having some kind of big health scare can be in the situation of high motivation to change their life. And at Google, we did some experiments looking at what if we just make it easier for people to have healthy 
foods like vegetables? What if we made it a little bit less easy for people to be eating less healthy foods? Like one of the simplest things that we did was just, they have these bulk containers of M&Ms and you scoop them into a cup. These are the most popular snack and people were eating a million pounds of these M&Ms. I guess this was at the New York office. And you cannot take away something that somebody loves without having them hate you and want to rebel. We all have this inner two-year-old who hates to be told what to do. And the mantra is, you're not the boss of me. There was (laughs) Another experiment that Google had done before I started working with them where they took away meat for just in one out of 24 cafes in the headquarters for one day a week, for one month of the year, they did this Meatless Monday campaign that was at least a national campaign. It might've even been international, but people got so upset at this frame that is telling them we are taking your meat away. It's not plant-based Monday. It is meatless Monday. So inner two-year-old is, you're not the boss of me. You don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me that I am a bad person for killing animals. You don't tell me that I am an anti-environmentalist for Mm -hmm. eating meat and you don't get to decide what I can eat. So they actually had a pig roast in the parking lot organized by these angry employees right outside that cafe. And they go into that cafe to get the plates and cups and napkins and things. And people are sending curse laden emails to the head of HR. Like you don't, if you're going to treat us like children, we're going to go and work for fucking Microsoft or Facebook. So angry. And so much of that was the frame where now, if you look at some of the most successful businesses helping people eat less meat, right? Like impossible foods or beyond burger and everything we talk about plant-based, there's not so much to fight back against with that. Another experiment we did though, looking at what if you give people control over their eating was we gave people glucometers. And this was again with Google and they set their own goals and they got to measure their blood sugar and they got to eat whatever they wanted. And so we were comparing this with what if you tell people what to do, or what if you just tell people here are the tools you decide what to do. And this was a huge success. People were very happy about getting to be the master of their own destiny and having their control over their own life reinforced Mm -hmm. rather than taking away by what could be seen as big brother. Sorry, go ahead. No, please. Just ultimately in close relationships, it's disconcerting for a lot of people with children, with partners, maybe with parents to realize that we can have much better relationships with them and we can even influence them better by reinforcing their own control over their lives and their decisions. And sometimes even telling them directly, I'm not the boss of you, which is actually true. But even if you are the boss of them, letting them know, listen, you decide this is your choice. You can say, here's what I recommend, or here's what I would prefer. But when we are putting less pressure on people, they're more open to our influence. So just in general, when we make it easier or more comfortable for the other person to say no to us, they end up being more inclined to say yes to us. It's like magic. Mm, Brilliant. And 
Yeah. This I love the the idea of actually giving people control or actually even giving it back to them to empower them to make their own choices because of course people are going to rebel if there's something else in this world that tells them they can't do this or takes away their agency because we have so much going yes. on where we feel powerless in this world and then like the example you just mentioned then here comes your boss and says this is a meatless Mondays we're going to take away your meats I've always found it's much better and more effective to be for something than to be against something right show people, hey, look at this beautiful other option. Maybe you want to also try this. Right. Feels to you. And that's a huge thing because it's, yeah, again, there are so many different things coming at us that make us feel or actually indeed do take our power away that giving people back control that I can absolutely see how that works. Um, Mm-hmm. And just to be, to clarify, this is really acknowledging the control that they already have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not that we're giving them control. They really do have control over their lives. And even in the extreme situation of you hold a gun to somebody's head and you demand their wallet, they actually still have to choose to give you their wallet. They'll feel like it's not a choice, but it really is a choice. So when you're supporting somebody's freedom and their autonomy and their agency, you're just acknowledging you are a free person with freedom of choice. And I know that I can't make you do anything. And this is a beautiful balm for relationships. I wish that I would have learned this in my last marriage. I was very much trying to get my husband to do a whole lot of different things because I thought that I had all of the answers. And of course he thinks the same thing about himself that I did do some behavioral interventions as a behavioral economist. Like for example, for some reason he had the habit of leaving the shampoo outside the shower on the windowsill. And I don't know why, but it was making me crazy. And I was, we were fighting regularly about the shampoo getting left on the windowsill. I I still have no idea, but, but the behavioral intervention, going back to what we were talking about earlier about not having to change people's minds. I was trying to change his mind to have him care, to put the shampoo back in the shower and then remember to do it. And then finally, I just got a shampoo dispenser. Like they have in a gym shower that you cannot move out (laughs) and it's installed in the wall and you can't put the shower on the still anymore. And it worked out fine, but that was, that marriage didn't go all that. We're still friends though. We're great co-parents. And my partner I'm with now, my husband, who's German actually, and also a world citizen and speaks at least five languages fluently and has lived in many different countries, works in many different countries. He maybe similarly to you has figured out a lot of secrets to influence through the life that he's led. And when we are trying to influence each other, we are so gentle. Mm. And because we are so gentle and we're not trying to force each other into anything, we will share what it is that we want and what it is that we hope for. But we want the other person to be happy, have their freedom. And when we feel that kind of confidence in one another. And like the other person is not trying to 
force us or manipulate us in any way, we try really hard to please each other. So we give each other space and, and we try to please each other and it works out so much better. And this is similarly with relationships at work or kids or things like this. When we're respectful and we're just sharing, here are my ideas, here are the things that I'm hoping for. If you're up for it, I want to make it really easy for you to do that thing, but I'm not the boss of you. Here's the opportunity. And people are excited to be part of a situation like that. And you just said it, this, when you do that, you come from a place of respect. You, there's a huge boost to trust and actually also feeling connected to the other. That's really beautiful. So tied to this, what are the biggest misconceptions that people have about being influential? I write in my book about a bunch of misconceptions about being influential. And one of the key misconceptions is that people will like us less when we ask for more. And this one is so important because it holds us holds us back from asking too much. And the reality is that people will like us less if we are jerks to them and if we act entitled when we ask for something. But what we're not thinking about is the difference between what we're asking for and how we're asking. And we can ask in a respectful way. We can ask in a playful way. And we can ask in a way that doesn't put any kind of pressure on them to just say something like, hey, I have this crazy idea. Would you like to hear it? You can ask for something crazy when you introduce it that way. Mm -hmm. Or to say, listen, I know that you're super busy and you might not have time for this, but if there's any chance we could do this together, it would be amazing. And you feel that I'm acknowledging I'm not the boss of you. And you can ask people for more than you expect that they can do, will want to do, but doing it in a gentle and respectful way can even have them feeling respected because you see them as someone who could potentially do this great thing, right? Someone who does have this power or this ability to change your life and make good things happen. There's While I'm mentioning this, I'll mention that there's a gender gap here that research finds that it's called a gender negotiation gap, that women are asking less often and for less and negotiating less often than men do. And this is only one piece of why we have a gender gap in pay, but this is one piece of that. And it's it's far beyond pay that women tend to, at least in generations like generation X and Y and Z, women and girls tend to have been socialized by their moms to be even more self-reliant than boys have been socialized to be because it just hasn't been an issue for men and for boys. Self-reliance was like, yeah, of course you can take care of yourself. We don't even need to focus on it. And in previous generations, women and girls were not self-reliant. And so it's been a feminist movement to say, women and girls, you can take care of yourself. You can support yourself. You can be successful. You don't need a man. But then the result is 
women and girls trying to be self-reliant and not asking for help and not getting help. And then there is this continuing sexist bias where it's not just men, but all of us, women and men and girls and boys tend to be asking girls and women for help more than we ask men and boys for help. So women are getting asked more favors and we're asking fewer favors. And we end up in this situation where we're burnt out and exhausted and we're not playing big because we're not feeling like we should be asking for help. We're trying to do this just with great effort on our own. And then we're also having a lot of our time and our energy taken up with the favors we're doing for other people. But Ariana, I want to recognize, I loved what you said at the beginning about how you're happy to do people favors whenever you can. And maybe it's for a friend or somebody, maybe it's for their friend. And this is also true for most of us, not just women, most of us, women, men, girls, boys, we feel good and we feel empowered when we get to do a favor if we felt that it was our choice. Yes. So somebody who comes in feeling entitled or pressuring us, that's not a favor that mm-hmm. feels good to do, but we feel empowered. And there's some research, I don't know if it's been replicated, but studies even showing that physically we feel empowered when we get to do a favor or donate money and we can hold a weight longer. So like they'll test how long can you hold a barbell? And if you've just done some act of service that made you feel good and empowered, you'll hold it longer. Yeah. And it's so beautiful to, to kind of in that sense, also know that we are wired for service. We're wired for helping and supporting each other. This is in our DNA because there's a reason why it makes us feel good. So there's also this, in a sense, selfish part of us wanting to do something good for others. And that's beautiful because it holds us together as a community. I I really find interesting what you just shared about women. And yes, the being taught to rely on yourself, be superwoman. It's a wonderful thing to be able to take care of yourself, but to not be able to ask for help can be really detrimental for our health, for the way we're connected within the community. And we run ourselves down. It's okay to show that we're vulnerable, that we can't do this alone. Most people can't do life alone. So to give ourselves permission to ask for help, I think we also give others permission to show up in the same way. And we're, again, we're at this place where we can connect with each other. Right. Yes, absolutely. And what you said about about us being wired for service and it's in our DNA, there's neuroscience research supporting that and finding that when people do acts of service and also give money, most of this is voluntarily, but they've actually even found some scans of when you're just having money taken away from you that goes to a charity, they scan your brain and find that the center's And neural networks of your brain that are activating through acts of service are what they call the primary reward network, which is the same thing that gets activated when you eat chocolate or when you have sex or apparently when you do cocaine. These, It's just the fundamental pleasure network of your brain 
is activated through acts of service. Fantastic. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. That's a great fact. When we're talking about influence, you yourself, though, you have an ethical approach to influence. Let's talk about the difference between ethical and unethical influence. How does that look like? And what are the effects, especially of the latter, that we're seeing in our world? This is going to be I believe a personal decision for each one of us to decide what am I going to call ethical influence and what am I going to call manipulation or unethical influence. And the danger that I see for most people I meet and most people I like most people and most of us are just nice people trying to do fine and do well and help people out. We tend to have a too broad definition of manipulation. And what I mean by that is that a lot of people I teach, when I give them tools and insights and strategies, they say, if the other person doesn't know what I'm doing, which is because they haven't been educated in influence as most people haven't, right? But if the other person doesn't know what's going on, then I feel like I'm manipulating them. And what that means is, okay, you're, you can read my book on influence. You can read influence as your superpower, but then you basically can't do anything with it because other anyone who hasn't read it, they're not going to know. So my perspective is, first of all, they don't need to know what you're trying to do. However, it can't be that you're pretending that you're trying to do something else or that you're trying not to get them to do this. You need to be perfectly open about what it is that you want or need or desire. They don't have to know what the strategies are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also a key piece of this is that you have to have their well-being in mind. It doesn't mean that this has to be a service to them, but that you are not, that you care about them, right? You don't want them to end up unhappy badly off, regretting their decision that they made. And let's say you're negotiating for something. Maybe it's just as simple as you're buying something that like a used Peloton bike, somebody didn't live up to their expectations of themselves, didn't use their piece of exercise equipment. You're going to go negotiate with them, try to buy it and see if you can end up happy in this situation. And to me, I want the other person to end up happy too. I'm not trying to take every single dollar off the table. Something I could do that would be to me unethical is I could go to them and I could say, okay, you're selling this bike for $2,000. I have another offer. There's someone else who's ready to sell me the bike for $1,000, but I'm going to have to like, I don't know, get a truck to Arizona and I'm not really wanting to do that, whatever it is, I can make up an alternative and say, but listen, if you'll give it to me for 1200, I'll get it from you. And that is unethical because I've lied to them and I've said something that's not true. Although it might nudge them to say yes, or to reduce their price. And in almost every situation, like you can go in and you can say something that will be equally effective or almost equally effective. Mm. And you didn't have to lie, but let's say that the real situation is $2,000 is just way too much for me to spend on 
a Peloton bike, but that doesn't stop me from going in and saying to this, calling this person and saying, listen, you should be able to sell your bike for whatever you want to sell your bike for. I've been on a Peloton before. It's amazing. I love it. I just can't possibly pay $2,000. I'm really just looking for a $1,000 Peloton. And I almost didn't call you because you're asking for two, but I just wanted to put it out there. If you might have some flexibility on the price and maybe they don't, we have a conversation, but I'm not going to try to trick them into something. Um, Real estate is an area where people will do tricky, unethical kinds of things like this and even have someone put in a fake offer. Mm-hmm. So let's talk to a friend and put in a fake lowball offer so that then the person say who's selling their apartment will feel like, oh no, the market isn't supporting my price that I'm asking. And maybe I should put in a lower price. But to me, I'm looking for people who want to collaborate or who want to make deals or whatever kinds in such a way that we would be happy to do another deal or to work together again in the future. And life is really long. So it happens a lot. And if you have two people who are happy, who've done a deal or made a collaboration, there are an infinite number of opportunities that could work out well in the future. So this is all about shifting from a transactional mindset to a relationship mindset as we're trying to influence other people. Mm, Beautiful. And so not only for the two or more people involved in, let's say, the Peloton bike transaction, but also for everybody else in their lives. These things, they carry on into other areas of our life, whoever else we're dealing with that day. So I, I, I love that shift. That's beautiful. So of course, by doing this, we also open ourselves up to potential rejection and rejection, no matter in which form, whether you get told, no, I'm not selling you the Peloton bike for a thousand dollars, or whether it's a rejection on a relationship type of level, the experience of it is for a lot of us is one of the big issues. Many of us have anchored and carry in our psyche. It just doesn't feel good. Rejection makes us feel awful about ourselves. So you say we should all practice to get rejected. (laughs) Why? Why? And when we practice that and get a no, how do we best deal with a no? So rejection is processed by our bodies like physical pain. This Mm -hmm. is the bad news. And this is why we're afraid to get rejected. Mm -hmm. And we're especially afraid to get rejected where love and money are concerned, especially if the money has to do with our income, because we feel like it's related to our worth. So the the bad news is, yes, rejection feels like physical pain. However, we can build up resilience to it, just like we build up our immunity to some kind of infection through vaccines that expose us to that infection, or just like we build up our muscles through the experience of exposing ourselves to the pain and the pain of lifting bigger and bigger weights, but it, you don't have to just jump into the deep end. So what I recommend is that we inoculate ourselves against that fear of rejection by going out and trying to get rejected in situations that this is, it should be something that you want, but not something that's going to break your heart or make you want to die if 
the other person says no. And for anyone who wants inspiration to think about what these kinds of things might be, there's a guy named Jia Zhang who has a hundred days of rejection video blog. My very favorite one for anyone who's listening was day three. And this was at a Krispy Kreme store in Austin, Texas. Just watch it. It's some of my five favorite minutes on the internet. What happens when we go out and we ask for something that we're trying to get rejected is it's the Aikido move where you've guaranteed yourself success. Because if you get rejected, that's a success. If you fail to get rejected, you got the thing you wanted. So that's still a success. And through this practice, you'll start to see that people really do want to help you out if they can. And often, even if they can't help you out with a specific thing that you've asked for, they will try to help you out with something. So an example of this from some of my students that was a very sweet situation was my student... Manus McCaffrey was going on a class project down to Patagonia, Chile to work with this environmental lobbying organization. They were trying to get this particular area of Patagonia protected as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it's a big trip and they're going to need equipment and supplies along with paying for tickets and everything else. In our local town, New Haven, Connecticut, there's a Patagonia store. Mm -hmm. So for Manus's rejection challenge, he decides to go to the Patagonia store and say, hey, would you give us the free gear to go down to Patagonia, right? And this is, it's just a local retail store. They're not going to give thousands of dollars of free gear. So he goes, he expects to get rejected and he does get rejected. But the store manager says, Hey, first of all, I can't give you free gear, but I can give you this discount that we have for environmentalists. That was actually more than half off of the clothes and the gear that they wanted. He said, and we have fundraisers at the store sometimes. And I have a friend who runs a brewery who has donated some beer in the past. And we could check with her. If you and your friends wanted to host a fundraiser at the store, we could have a party. So Madison and his friends bring some other friends who are in a band and they actually go, they like bigger and better and bigger and better. They go around the town and they get some other businesses to donate raffle prizes. So they have a raffle where they, this is the fundraising part that they do at the store and a bunch of us show up. And because we're at the store, of course, we're going shopping as well. So we're buying stuff. Store is happy. I got some gloves for my dad, I think. And they go down to have their trip. But before they go down to their trip, they hear from the national office for the Patagonia store in Chile, who has found out about them and this crazy ask that they made in the project And these guys reach out and they say, hey, we do want to give you some free gear. And there were six people on the team and they gave each of them a $500 gift certificate for free gear from Mm -hmm. Patagonia. So what would have happened if Manus had been just a normal person going about his life, going down to the trip, everyone spending lots of money, it wouldn't have occurred to him to ask for free gear. But if it did occur to him, he would just think, well, no, like, obviously, of course, they're not going to give us free gear. And it was just this opportunity of the nudge for me saying, hey, go try to get rejected. So this is me now saying, hey, to everyone who's listening to us right now, hey, go out and try to get rejected. 
Awesome. I love how this is a win-win psychologically for the individual and also how it's a win-win for everybody who gets involved. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Zoe. Seemingly opposite, but also related to this. In a course you developed at Yale, you challenged your students to say no for 24 hours. How did you come up with that? And what actually happens? What do the students learn from this? Anyone who's listening who is not ready for the rejection challenge, start with the no challenge. Mm -hmm. 24 hours of no, just like Ariane said. The idea is that you say no to every single person who asks you for something during that 24-hour period, whether you wanted to say yes or not, whether it's big, small, professional, personal, no matter who it is, you say no so that you can experience how that feels for you. First big realization for almost everyone who does this challenge is realizing that you're a people pleaser. And you're more of a people pleaser than you thought. So if you think you're a people pleaser, it's actually worse. If you didn't think you're a people pleaser, like you probably are. It's hard to say no. And then the second thing that happens is you experience the other person's reaction when you say no. And that's you do not die and they do not kill you. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, they're completely fine. And they're just going to go ask somebody else because they weren't assuming and certain that you were going to do or say yes to this thing it was just an idea. So then it messes with your mind where you realize, oh my God, I've been making myself suffer and I've been sacrificing and investing so much my whole entire life up until this moment, because subconsciously I thought I needed to say yes to everybody. Mm. I totally didn't. The world is going to be fine. And you can also, if you want, say, change your mind. And then you learn changing your mind is fine. But the third piece of this that isn't clear until after you've been practicing this is that when you become more comfortable saying no, you become more comfortable with the idea of other people saying no. Mm. You become more comfortable with rejection. And when you're more comfortable with rejection, then you don't have this needy feeling that can be repulsive to other people. Mm-hmm. So you're asking gently and without pressure, open-minded in this charming way that people want to say yes. Amazing. I will have to try this. I want to try it. I would love to hear how it goes. <laughs> It'll be- Especially tough with my little Yorkie Teddy. Not that he asked me <laughs> verbally, but him standing in front of the fridge is asking me to use my opposable thumbs to open the fridge and get him a treat. I think that'll be the hardest. Okay, this is an important piece. Uh-huh. First of all, anybody who's asking you for something more than once, you don't have to continue saying no to that same person, dog, cat, whoever is asking you for things. It's to experience in each relationship. Mm-hmm. How does it feel to say no? And then you've gotten the learning from that relationship. It's not. And if you keep saying no, what if you said no to Teddy for 24 hours and you didn't give him any food? Like it's terrible. So each, everyone who asks, say no to them one time, at least one, maybe you're on a roll and you want to keep saying no, that's fine. But the second thing for anyone else listening, please don't ruin your life. 
<laughs> so if Ariana calls you and invites you to be on her podcast, don't be like, no, I don't think so. If you get an incredible opportunity that you have been waiting for and that just, it lights up your life and your heart and your eyes sparkle, go ahead and say yes, because you're the boss of you. Yes, absolutely. And so don't ruin your lives. And you actually, speaking about not ruining lives and your book, you will also speak about the man who saved the world by saying no. Can you share? Oh my God. This guy, Stanislav Petrov. If anybody gets interested in this story, there's a great documentary. It's a Danish documentary called The Man Who Saved the World. And Stanislav Petrov was a Russian officer who, in the 1980s, what year was this? I have to look back at the year, was on duty in a secret command center in Moscow that was monitoring for a potential missile attack by the United States. And this was in the deep heart of the Cold War and tensions were high. The Soviet military had accidentally shot down a Korean Airlines passenger plane just a month before. And this is how edgy everyone was. It really seemed like an attack could be imminent. And he sees on the screens five missiles coming from the United States headed toward Russia. And he says no to doing what his job required of him, which was notifying his superiors so that they could launch a counterattack and start World War III. Mm -hmm. This was one of the hardest decisions I'm sure that anyone has ever had to make in the history of the world. And he realized that it didn't make sense that only five missiles would have been sent in an attack. Everything that he knew, everything that he had been trained to watch for was a massive attack. There was only a period of, it was period maybe 20 minutes mm -hmm. where there would still be time to retaliate before these missiles hit. And he had asked for confirmation from the visual, I don't know, air towers who are looking to see, can we see the actual missiles? They couldn't because it was too cloudy. So he doesn't know, are these missiles about to hit Russia or am I about to start World War III or am I going to use my intuition and make the best decision that I possibly can lock myself in this room and hope that I'm right? And that was what he did. And sometimes saying no means saying no to the thing that you're supposed to do, saying no to your job, saying no to your superior. Sometimes it's very costly. And he, in fact, retired the following year. And it, he said he was neither rewarded nor reprimanded. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what the reality was. Uh, but Stanislav Petrov say, definitely saved my life and saved the lives of what was millions of people around the world, because if we had a nuclear attack, so almost certainly, and he's absolutely certain, if he had notified command of this missile attack, they would have counterattacked, US would have counterattacked, and would have put the whole planet into nuclear winter, killing up to 40% of the people 
on this earth. So the magic and power of saying no cannot be overestimated. And we should be forever grateful to Stanislav Petrov. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that story just is so viscerally moving. Yeah, that really got me. You're also talking about in your book about us having gator and judge personalities. And you say that it's important to focus on the gator first when we want to influence someone. Can you explain this concept to us, please? Yes. The gator and the judge are the analogy that I use for what behavioral economists call system one and system two. And I'm mentioning this just for any listeners who are into behavioral economics. You don't have to know the names of any of this, but just know gator and judge are the Zoe terminology. They're not official. The gator is our unconscious, intuitive, quick, emotional system that drives researchers estimate up to 95% of all of our decisions and all of our behavior. It's like an alligator lurking below the surface of the water. Like it's lurking below your conscious awareness, constantly scanning the environment for opportunities and threats. And key to being a gator that most people don't know is gators are incredibly efficient. And that means they can be incredibly lazy. They have a brain the size of a walnut, body that weighs up to a thousand pounds. And you, I think of them as being this scary, even bloodthirsty kind of creature, highly dangerous. I don't want to hang out with one. <laughs> However, their dominant response to all of the stimulus coming their way is nothing. They're so lazy that they can go up to three years without eating anything at all. Primal, lazy, very quick when they do take action and our emotions are um, stacked in this area as well. So all of our gut reactions and habitual behavior is all the domain of the gator. The other piece, the judge, is like a human judge. It's conscious, slow, deliberate, effortful, and trying to be rational and trying to make objective decisions because this is the conscious part of our mind. That's how we perceive ourselves, that we have an intention and we follow through, that we respond to rational arguments. So when we're trying to persuade people, we make rational arguments. But the reality is that this is just this teeny, teeny slice of what's going on. The vast majority are these unconscious influences and the gator is influencing the judge. So a lot of what looks like reason that we're doing is rationalizing and we're rationalizing these unconscious or emotional preferences, habits, assumptions, these kinds of things. So when we're trying to influence somebody, the gator is very quick and it is always making snap judgments. So first we focus there. And then second, if it's necessary to pull together information, facts, rational arguments, we go ahead and do that. But information is not important until they're interested. So Mm -hmm. the gator is what gets them interested. 
and then we can give them the facts or arguments that we want to help them make that decision that we're trying to help them make. Can you give us an example of this? Yeah. Let's see. Is there any, like asking you is a little awkward because you're already taking so much action to superhumanize yourself in your life, but you're on this path of continuing improvement. So is there something that for you're still not quite there yet that you would like to be doing more of in your life? Yes. There's different areas. For example, let's just take a physical area. So I would like to focus more on weightlifting to strengthen my entire system. Okay, great. So you want to do more weightlifting than you already do. Mm -hmm. And we could go through all of these arguments and reasons that weightlifting is important. And this is how we typically try to persuade ourselves and other people and does all these good things for your bones and your metabolism, all that, blah, blah, blah. But you are all of that, Mm -hmm. right? So there's no information that's going to make you more likely to do this. And information actually doesn't increase motivation in general once in a while, but information is not very motivating, but let's, let me ask then. So the gator likes to do things that are easy, right. And is very lazy. So what is the context or the situation in which you're weightlifting? Do you go to the gym? Do you have weights at your house? I actually have a a home gym. And so what I found, for example, for cardio, what works really well, I have a great cardio habit and it's so good. My mind, everything is working better. I stack the cardio with watching Netflix. So that I, and I only get to watch Netflix when I do cardio. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. So that stacking the, what I really want to do with something that might be a little tedious, that works really well with weightlifting, however, and I do it at home. I haven't quite figured it out yet. So, and by the way, did you know about the academic research on the paper is called holding the hunger games hostage at the gym, but there was a study where they gave people, I guess, addictive audiobooks that they could only listen to at the gym to do exactly what you're talking about. But you maybe just did this naturally that you take something that's unpleasant and you stack something pleasant on it. And then it's not so bad. Okay. So like I already was doing it. And then after the fact, I heard about that study. Hi, yes, it's working. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's genius. And so the weightlifting part is it. So let me just check with you. Do you enjoy it or you don't enjoy it so much? I enjoy it once I get into it because it, physically feels good to move your body. It's more about getting myself out of work mode, busy mode, and actually making that extra time. So it's not even about the actual weightlifting, Mm -hmm. but it's about tearing yourself away from the thing that feels productive, maybe is enjoyable, maybe you're in the flow. Yes. Okay. And so there's nothing in the context or the environment of what's going on to tear you away from this. And so one thing that can help from a gator perspective is just having a reminder or having an interruption. And it could be a mental one, or it could be an actual literal one. And if you are like me though, and you're, we're different in many ways. So I'm not saying that you would be or should be, but I don't respond to my own reminders for myself as much as I do to other people's reminders for me. 
or to other people. Like I just, I'm not as good a boss of me as other people are. Mm -hmm. So do you have somebody who you would, if they asked you, you would go and do the weightlifting. By the way, I can be that person. I'd be happy to reach out to you. (laughs) Okay. And say, hey, this is when you said you wanted to go and lift weights. Do you still want to do that? Would you like me to? Okay. Absolutely. Okay, boom, done. (laughs) And so this is what I'm talking about, everybody, about the gator versus the judge where, and, and for me looking at Ariana, I can see her face lighting up and smiling. And it's also crazy, right? Like, obviously we didn't plan this and we just are meeting each other right now, but it's great. And this will help me be inspired as well to do more of the exercise that I want to do. Information isn't going to help. That would be the judge part saying here, all of the reasons to do the thing, but the gate, the gator is just saying, listen, we don't need the reasons. We just want the behavior and the gator responds emotionally. And mm-hmm. so the gator is saying, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to let myself down or let Zoe down when Zoe is reaching out. And so w- we can do this offline. We don't need to set the time. But I'm like all ready to do it right now. But let's pick five times. Like after we stop recording, let's just pick the next five times and it'll mm-hmm. be whatever time you want. And I'm just going to reach out to you and check in. And then We'll check in after that. But a lot of us, if there's something you want to do, it can be so helpful to just have another person be the person who's going to reach out to you. And if it's something that you want to do with that person, that can be great. For me, this has been a huge deal with writing. So I've just written this book and I wrote, I wrote it and I rewrote it. And it literally took me five years to get the thing done. Oh gosh. But I I needed... (laughs) <laughs> I, I I relate so much to that. Zoe. Do you? I know you're a writer too. Yeah. So for me, I have to have writing dates. Mm-hmm. So I just need to have writing dates and they can be real. They can be virtual. And it was terrible when the pandemic lockdown happened because I didn't have the virtual habit, but now I do. And yeah, I just acknowledged to myself, I don't meet my own deadlines, but I have a people pleasing habit that I'm now going to use in a productive way because I don't want to let another person down. Excellent. Oh, that makes so much sense. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) It would be fun. And I'm happy that now I get to connect with you again. So it'll be totally fun. Yeah. And it's both of us. Oh, how cool. Zoe will remind me to lift weights. Like, (laughs) oh my God, no, I have to lift weights. (laughs) Yeah, you totally will. And uh, and, and speaking, so we have the gator, we have the judge. And how about the left and right spheres of our brains? How do those react to influence? So there's a, I'm going to try to not go into super deep nerdville to take too, 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 too long. But let's just say overall, what I grew up being taught about left brain, right brain is generally not accurate. We use our whole brain for almost everything. And what happened was technology needed to advance to beyond where it was when we learned about left brain, right brain, and say creativity versus analytical to be able to see the kind of activation that's really happening all over. But I think what you're saying is we're talking about gator judge and there is some part of us that is creative and emotional versus some part of us that's analytical. And 
overall, the main thing for us to know as influencers is just that the non-analytical, we can think of it as being more human kinds of parts of our minds, is vastly more powerful and it happens more quickly, it's stickier, and it's more influential than that teeny tiny analytical part that we just imagine is much bigger than Mm. it actually is. Mm -hmm. So if you want to think of it as a left brain brain kind of dichotomy, because if you grew up Mm -hmm. like me being taught in that way, it's fine to think of it in that way. You might think of it like other people have been taught about your, like your reptile brain or your monkey brain or something like that. So whatever analogy it is that you use for yourself, just focus on that non-rational piece is in the driver's seat. The rational piece is just the teeny tiny like icing on the top. It's not the cake. Excellent. Thank you, Zoe. So if we talk, when we talk about influence, when we are around people that we consider very influential, uh, a lot of times what strikes me is that it also comes with them being charismatic. And I remember uh, a friend who worked in the Clinton administration back in the day, he told me how Bill Clinton was able to make anyone he talked to feel like they were the most important person in the room. And so politicians and other public figures, of course, can get trained to hone these skills. So this, what is charisma? What makes people be drawn to you and actually want to listen to you and potentially also take action on what you put forth? It's funny that it's so hard for people to define charisma, because just like you said, people pay attention to you and they want to listen to you and maybe take action. But what is that thing? It's not something that comes from trying to be the center of attention right? Mm. People who try to be the center of attention are not at all charismatic. They're super annoying. Yes. But people like Clinton, I've never met him, but I've also talked to people who've been around him. He comes up a lot as someone who, like other charismatic individuals, can so keenly focus his attention on Mm. another person that they can feel like the only one in the room. For me, the most dramatic time that I have felt like that was when about a decade ago, I guess I got to go to a Prince concert and I was so excited and we're waiting in this little club in Las Vegas that he owned for a couple of hours and there's music and lights and it's hot and the tension and excitement is building and the stage lights comes up. He walks to the middle of the stage and he looks, I'm so sure, directly into my eyes and his first line is something like, are we alone? And I turned to my friend and I put my hand as the go, Oh my God, I think I'm going to faint. I'm laughing. And then this woman next to me, total stranger, she drops to the floor in a dead faint unconscious <laughs> because Prince's charisma had just literally knocked her out. And I guess people had talked about this happening in Beatles concerts. I've heard that it happened on the campaign trail when Bill Clinton was speaking, but I had never witnessed it. And I guess I not really believed it was true, but I had felt it. I was about to faint. And then she does. And I learned later, first of all, that she wasn't the only person to faint at a friend's concert. It happened from time to time. 
And second of all, Prince wasn't just not born with that level of charisma, but was actually introverted, incredibly shy and anti-charismatic when he first got started. When Warner Brothers signed him, they saw him in concert. They loved his music. But in this concert, he was so scared that he was just slowly turning his back to the audience. And he his music sounded wonderful. But when he had to speak, he couldn't speak above a whisper. And they said, listen, we love your music. We'll sell your albums, but you are never going on tour for us. And it wasn't until he had a number one Billboard hit, I Want to Be Your Lover, that he finally got to go on tour because Rick James reached out to him and said, hey, you can be my warm-up act if you want for the Super Freak tour. So he was. And I guess at the beginning, he sucked, he was booed, and he is way before his time wearing women's underwear and doing the whole gender fluidity thing. But during the course of that tour, he started practicing the behaviors and tools of charisma that Rick James was using. And by the end, Rick James says that he was jealous. And I I totally believe it. The main thing is learning how to focus your attention on another human being. And one of the ways you can do that so simply is by using people's names more often. Mm -hmm. When you use somebody's name, they feel that you're paying attention to them. They actually have a special network in their brain gets activated. It's this self-referential network that you feel like, oh, she's paying attention to me. And this special brain activation is why you can wake up from a deep sleep when you hear somebody say your name or in a crowded room at a party, somebody says your name and you look over because you get this special sensation in your brain. You can also though, just ask more questions Mm -hmm. and especially ask more follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. There's research by Alison Woodbrooks and some colleagues at Harvard looking at what makes people like each other in conversations. And they have done research in employment or business kinds of contexts, but also speed dates. And they find that people who ask questions are better liked and the best liked people are the follow-up question askers, because then the person feels that you actually really do care. And Mm -hmm. my suggestion is don't just randomly ask questions, but just exercise and cultivate your curiosity to ask questions that you're legitimately curious about. And when you're legitimately curious, then you will actually really listen in that way that people are wishing that you would listen to them. And a third thing for anybody who is nerdy and wants to go all the way is you can start practicing cutting out diminishers in your language. And these are words and phrases that we use in conversation to make ourselves a little small so that nobody's intimidated by us or thinking that we're arrogant. And a lot of these have the signs, the cues are that they come with first person pronouns like I, me, mine, but they'll be like, I, so I could be wrong, but I was just wondering, I don't know if this is true, but I kind of thought maybe Mm. these sorts of preambles to just saying the thing are very hard to listen to. They are anti-charisma. So you can be more charismatic by just saying the thing. However, the thing is, if you're trying to monitor yourself for this self-consciousness 
that comes along with these diminishers and first person pronouns, you're making yourself conscious while trying not to be Mm self-conscious. So the best way to do this is to just check your emails when you have time, when you feel like it, and you've written an email to somebody, especially if this is one where there's a, it's an email that you were a little uncomfortable before you sent it. And you wrote at least a paragraph in there, check and see how many diminishers did you have and how can you ask questions or just say the thing instead? That is that's a great tool. That is great advice, Zoe. Thank you. And these are real, anyone can implement these in order to become more influential. I especially also like the one about the questions and the follow-up questions. It just, yeah, when it happens to myself, I really feel seen. I feel acknowledged. I feel validated. I feel like I matter when somebody does that with me. In your book, you also talk about a magic question. So what is the magic question? Thank you for asking. Let's wrap up on this one because I feel like I'm giving lots of tools and I don't want to overwhelm people, but I'm always wanting to just teach everybody every single thing. (laughs) So the magic question is my very favorite influence tool. So for anyone who doesn't have something yet that you want to put into practice, have it be this one. All that it is, is just asking what it would take And I'll share a story to help it sink in so that you can remember. And this is a story that one of my heroes, feminist icon Gloria Steinem, told when she came to New Haven, Connecticut. She was working on the problem of sex trafficking. She'd been to a conference in Zambia. And after the conference was visiting a rural village where three of the young women had been lost to sex traffickers the previous year. And they were never heard from again. And in this village, she sits down on a tarp in the middle of a barren field with this group of women to ask the magic question. She says, what would it take for that to never happen again? So that no young woman from this village or anybody from this village will be sex trafficked. And they tell her an electric fence. Mm -hmm. An electric fence? They say. When the corn reaches a certain height, the elephants come and they eat it. We have all these families who are desperate and starving. We have nothing to sell on the market. We have no money to send our kids to school. So Gloria Sanum says, okay, listen, if I raise the money, will you build the fence? They say, yes, she does. And the way she describes it, she comes back to the village a few years later, there's a bumper crop of corn And no one has been sex trafficked from that village since they got the fence. Mm. It didn't solve the global problem of sex trafficking, but it solves the problem in this village. And it does it in some obvious and unobvious ways. First, it's respectful. So if you're trying to influence someone to do something, you want them to feel respected. There's no pressure when you're saying, what would it take for this to happen? Second, they have all this information that you don't have. They are the expert on that situation, on their obstacles. She never could have known that they need an electric fence, right? Because she could never know that it's actually, for this village, a human wildlife conflict problem. Mm -hmm. Also, when you ask the magic question and you get this roadmap, 
which is very often less than you would have expected or less than you might have been willing to do. If that roadmap gets followed, they've actually committed to supporting whatever your outcome was. So in this case, the way I interpret it, it's not the electric fence solved sex trafficking on its own. It's the women who asked for the electric fence, who once they got it, would make sure that no one from that village is going to get sex trafficked. This was a question that was empowering to them to answer that question for her and for each other. And what ended up happening actually was this was the first time that they met as a group, but they began meeting regularly as a group to ask what would it take to solve other problems in this village. And they've ended up even years later, they have two women run businesses. They brought in the women from their neighboring village as well. They have a tailoring operation and they have a chicken farm and their women's group meets regularly. They call themselves Waka Simba, which means strong women. Mm, fantastic. And again, a wonderful story about connection and basically illuminating that people have power. Thank you so much, Zoe, for that. There's one question I like to ask each of my guests, and that's about practices that have elevated their lives mentally, physically, or spiritually from the treasure trove that you already shared with us. But is there any other practice that you have that you'd like to share with us? I'm happy to share one that is my individual writing practice, because mm -hmm. we were talking about writing earlier, and this is not in the book. But what I find is so helpful for me to clear my mind before writing is what I call my Nietzsche journal. And the philosopher Nietzsche had the idea that the purpose of being human is to become someone who no longer denies. And when I write in my Nietzsche journal, I just write one page or sometimes two. Every single line begins with, I do not deny. I do not deny. I do not deny. And then it's whatever comes into my gator brain, just letting it flow. Sometimes these things are things I'm embarrassed about or something that I'm guilty about or something that's just distracted me or something that I'm excited about or something that's beautiful and wonderful. And I haven't even been willing to see it or acknowledge it. It's different every day. But this is my practice to strip away self-deception before mm. I can focus on whatever my writing project is. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Zoe. For people who'd like to learn more about what you do or uh, connect with you, how can they do so? Please come to my website. It's zoechance.com. You can find out about the book and other stuff. Like I have a free newsletter sharing influence tips if you're interested in more of these things. Excellent. Zoe, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. Uh, so many seeds have been planted in me and I'm certain also in the audience. Thank you for all the amazing work you do. I know at your heart is the of your mission is actually empowering people who want to change the world for the better with their visions. And I just love and respect so much what you do. It was an absolute pleasure to connect with you today. Thank you so much. The pleasure is mutual. And I'm excited that we will continue to be connected through a random idea that we hatched in this session. Yeah.
And I'm really excited to continue listening to your show because the way that you choose these really wide range of experts on all these different things in the curious way in which you ask questions just speaks to my soul as well. So thank you for your work. Thank you so much, Zoe. That means a lot. Have a beautiful rest of your day. You too. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 